Hello everyone and welcome to 80 Days and Exploration Podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by two history and geography nerds in an internet-powered balloon. This podcast is dedicated to discussing little-known countries, territories, settlements and cities from around the world. My name is Luke Kelly and today I'm broadcasting with... Joe Byrne and we're both in Dublin. <laughs> yes, both in Dublin, Ireland. Soon, soon, to, uh, uh, soon to head to other places for, for Christmas. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we don't have Mark with us today. He's uh, he's very busy and in a in a completely different uh, time zone to us. So <laughs> we're going to give you guys a very quick Christmas episode today, uh, continuing in our Christmas tradition, and we're going to be discussing Christmas markets, uh, which I don't know about you, Joe, but I reckon are pretty much the most Christmassy thing you can do at this time of yeah, year. Yeah, I mean, I, our... I, I like a crib with live animals, um, but but they're harder <laughs> to come by than a Christmas market, which seem to be everywhere now. Uh, yeah, so Weihnachtsmarkt, and they're called in the German-speaking world, where long-time listeners will remember I spent a bit of time in Switzerland, and they do a good market, and it's a lovely way to spend a snowy evening, which is the kind of weather you actually get in Central Europe, <laughs> rather than uh, wet and windy Ireland, where um, snow just never sticks around. Well, even worse, I, I mean, I, I I probably mentioned it before, but like when we started the podcast, I lived in Hong Kong and like Christmas just doesn't feel like Christmas. Oh, because it's, it's 25 degrees. Warm. <laughs> yeah. So I really feel for people who are kind of in hot or continental climates at this time of year, because I feel like you just it's very hard to get into the Christmas. The, the kind of the Charles Dickensified Christmas that um, yeah may not be that old. We're, we're going to see or some of the traditions around Christmas markets are quite old. But a lot of Christmas traditions are surprisingly recent, um, you know, such as Christmas trees and so on. They don't go back as far as we think. Yeah, so Christmas-specific markets originated in Germany, as far as I can tell. Yeah, it is funny how, how, how much of a monopoly um, German imagery has on Christmas. I suppose mm. a lot of German immigrants to, the, to North America probably have a big role to play in the English-speaking world's view of Christmas. And yeah. Prince Albert who married Queen Victoria, also was a German, and brought... Yeah. He brought some stuff. Yeah, definitely yeah. the Christmas tree, I think, to the UK. I think we discussed that yeah, I think we did as well. in one of our... But uh, the, of our it's just Christmas an unusual, episodes. you know, twist of uh, of of geography and fate that uh, their, their ideas caught on in the early modern and modern period, and, and they're the ones we have. Yeah. But according to my research anyway, like two of the oldest Christmas markets that are still running today are uh, the Dresden... Stritzelmarkt, which seemingly started in 1434, and the Nuremberg Kindlesmarkt, which began around 1628. I was actually in Nuremberg last year, and it definitely felt like a proper, proper Christmas market, mm. you know, when you have the snow and the, the glue vine, which we'll talk about probably later yeah. on. And yeah, it, it really felt like probably the most Christmassy place I'd ever been. And are, are they the kind of first ones you could find records of at all or just the longest running? They're the first uh, ones that I could find that were specifically associated with Christmas. There were, uh, there's a history of fairs in places like Vienna. I think there was a fair in 1296 that began around Christmas time, like ran, a, ran for like two weeks around December, but they don't seem to have anything to do with the Christmas tradition. Okay. Uh, whereas Dres Dresden and Nuremberg seem to be, or at least claim to be, specifically around uh, the, the Christmas or Yuletide yeah, festival. Yeah, sort of ad Advent festivals to kind of stock up for the, for the yeah. big winter party. 
Okay, yeah, and they're both based around uh, churches. Yeah. So the Nuremberg ones, yeah, last year we you can go up on the on the balcony of the church. There's sort of like an outdoor balcony area, and you overlook the entire uh, Christmas market. Oh, wow. and it it feels it feels extremely uh, festive. Lovely. Bern has a quite extensive one. Sort of the square outside the Swiss Parliament backs onto like a further couple of squares, and those become a com- complete market area for most of Advent, basically. Uh, selling everything okay. you would expect, your gingerbread and your glue vine and your knickknacks and tinsel and um but a lot more food and drink, I suppose, than than things. But nice wooden decorations are also pretty common. The wooden toys and yeah, stuff I think, sort are of quite, very traditional. Quite sort of uh, rustic things. Uh, and you did get a few yeah. sort of like you know, action figures and that kind of stuff, more modern stalls mixed in, but the the general yeah. vibe is very much that. Yeah, so I, I, according to my research, the tradition kind of spread beyond Germany in around the 17th century. And we're going to talk a little bit later about some of the kind of very weird variations of Christmas markets around the world. But I'd also like to kind of spend a little bit of time talking about what sort of makes a Christmas market, at least for me. And I think definitely for me, the quintessential Christmas market uh, beverage, I suppose, is your mulled wine or your Glühwein. Mm. Uh, which is German for glow wine, I think. Your German is better than mine, I mean, Joe, that's, that sounds I plausible, but I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I didn't talk about glowing all that much in, in my supermarket shopping. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of mulled wine. I like to make it even at home. But apparently, yeah, mulled wine is way, way older than Christmas markets themselves. Mm. Originates in the Roman Empire, where it was apparently known as Conditum Paradoxum. Sounds good. Yeah, made with uh, honey, boiled in, in wine, to which was then added spices like pepper and saffron and uh, dates. And that was then strained and blended before being enjoyed warm, as we would have, uh, as we'd have mulled wine today. However, uh, it obviously wasn't associated with Christmas uh, at the time. This is a pre pre first Christmas. Is it? Yeah, right. So yeah, it wasn't the party exactly. drink. It was the party. It wasn't the party drink for the the man who wasn't born yet. Exactly. Uh, but then in the 12th century, uh, a drink called spiced wine, which followed roughly the same manufacturing process, was widespread in France and Spain. And apparently King Henry III of England was uh, was very keen on it. Yeah, and it seems that uh, historians were able to trace the recipe of, of the drink from his oh, kitchens. Cool. But yeah, mulled wine didn't become associated with Christmas until much later and basically sort of started to be sold within these German uh, Christmas markets as they spread across Europe. It became very popular seemingly in Scandinavian countries, particularly in Sweden and Denmark, where it's called glog or glug. And... Yeah, there's a few regional variants that I came across in my research. So Bulgarian style mulled wine is made by adding honey, apples and citrus fruits. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty straightforward. Uh, Moldovan is Izvar, it's called. Uh, and the main ingredients are local red wine, pepper and honey, which I, I don't know about pepper myself. Yeah, but, um, I know what you mean. Swedish style uh, main ingredients are red, uh, red wine, obviously, sugar, cinnamon, cardamom, ginger and cloves. Mm-hmm. And they also seemingly add vodka or aquavit because, you know, they're Swedish. Yep. Uh, so why not? And Alsatian style mulled wine is made from white wine, oh. uh, apparently. And Polish style mulled wine is made from hot beer <laughs> okay. as well as fruit and spices. So it's yeah, kind of mul- I know mulled you can, beer. <laughs> Mulled beer, basically, yeah, and I know you can get mulled cider as well, but I've never, I've never come across uh, mulled beer. 
I, I don't really think I would be keen on that. Yes, so so as a, as a sort of a, a non-drinker, it would be more sort of the, the spiced apple juice is what I would encounter, mm. uh, which is okay, but it's not as exciting, I don't think. Um, I've always been more interested in sort of the, the sweets end of Christmas markets. You do have a bit of a sweet tooth, I think, Joe, I yeah. I do have a bit of a sweet tooth, Um uh, that may may not be something listeners are aware of, but uh, if you get me in Secret Santa, a nice box of chocolates would be would be preferential oh, yeah. to a to um to a whiskey, a bottle of wine. <laughs> um, yeah, but again, I I feel like the German speakers of Europe have, have perfected the quintessential treat. Uh, there's a thing called Lebkuchen, which isn't like it's essentially gingerbread, but it's not quite what you think of when you think of like a you know, not my gumdrop buttons. You know, a <laughs> Shrek gingerbread man. Um, that's a very yeah. kind of, um, should we say, childish version of a, of a gingerbread. Uh, very cute. Yeah. But it, it's, you know, if that's what you're expecting when you go to a lab cooking shop, uh, you're going to be blown away by the sort of almost seriousness of a, of a traditional lab cooking. Yeah. I, I came across them in Nuremberg and there were so many varieties mm. of, of these kind of biscuits. Well, and yeah, we took home a few and they were really, really well, good. Well, they keep for a long time, so you might still have them a year later. Okay. Um, but but mm. we're going to get to Nuremberg. So they, they, have the, they have some special uh, input on the history of, of Leibkuchen. Okay. So okay. when it comes to the etymology of Leibkuchen, Kuchen is kind of like a cake or you know a cookie, I suppose, mm. if you want. And the Leib bit of Leibkuchen isn't, as far as I can tell, no one really knows where that comes from. Like okay. it, it sounds like it's called a life cake, but that seems not Ooh. true. And etymologists don't think that's true. But there are some words like that sound a bit like that in older German that mean like very sweet or, or things like that. So yeah, the name is one of these wonderful fossils where no one's quite sure why it's called what it's called because it's pretty old. So yeah, no, as I say, it's essentially gingerbread, but in the Christmas markets around Central Europe, you're going to find vast varieties of different combinations of spices, nuts, cloves, honey. Uh, they can be hard, they can be soft. Some say, uh, citation needed here, uh, but <laughs> some, some say that they originate from honey cakes that Egyptians, Indians, and Mesopotamians offered to the gods as a kind of, okay. a, you know, honey will kind of help dough sort of last longer and, and sort of preserve it a little bit. Um, so maybe if it's something you're leaving as an offering in a tomb or a temple, that might be a, a good choice. Also, they taste really good. Um, and if you're going to give your god something to eat, it better, you know, you've got to give them something nice, right? Um, of course. You know, but the the Leibkuchen isn't being used in this context. And so nobody's leaving, as far as I can tell, no one's leaving kind of gingerbread men on the altar in their cathedrals. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of a disconnect from... Um, those honey cakes that we see in images of the ancient civilizations to a mm. more recent, but no less holy provenance of the German Leibkuchen, because the earliest records we have of this are of monks in Franconia in the 13th century making these spiced uh, honeyed breads. Also famously have a sweet tooth, you know, thir- 13th century monks. Oh, I, I mean, I can't get enough of cakes. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, there's nothing else to do. They make they make beer. They make cake. They're yeah. Sounds like a good life. They occasionally pray. I think um, yeah. Do a bit of praying. Yeah. So recorded as early as 1296 in Ulm, uh, we have recipes of Leibkuchen. 
Uh, now these, of course, are probably just the first literate people to be making this style of dessert, I'm sure. They were the first ones to write things yeah. down. Um, yeah. So I'm sure they were not the inventors of uh, this approach, which has probably been baked in households all around them. But they kind of, um, not mechanised it, but sort of uh, increased the scalability of it a little bit. Mm. Um, because, of course, monks need to be working. You know, that's sort of an important part of mon- monastic life is having things to do. Uh, okay. Some versions of Leibniz can include uh, patterned, thin sort of wafers on the bottom, uh, which are very reminiscent of communion wafers that monks would have been making. They definitely feature in the ones that I would have had oh, in really? okay. last year. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so they're called an oblate, and they would have been patterned with sort of similar presses to the ones that would have been used to make communion wafers. So that's kind of a, okay. an obvious reason why you're making them in a monastery, but they, they perform the role that sort of um, very light wafer dough stops the more thick sticky honeyed lab cook and dough from sticking to the baking trays so mm. it's kind of a serves a practical purpose but um okay kind of as a testament to their origin honey sweetened doughs essentially were being prepared in november left for at least a couple of weeks but sometimes years to uh, undergo a natural fermentation when you store them in a cool environment and then that produces bubbles that kind of increase the you know the performance of the gingered bread uh, with nice okay. air bubbles and a nice long shelf life, so they they last longer because of this fermentation. So perfect to give us treats to people who you know you want to impress. Uh, and more recently, since the eighties, these hard sort of heart shaped slave cooking have become popular, even at Oktoberfest, with like romantic okay. or sarcastic things typed on them. They're quite hard to eat. There's kind of more for display, uh, if I'm honest. Okay. Um, but the more traditional cookies are softer, strongly spiced with. Ginger, cardamom, nutmeg, cloves, aniseed, cardamom, coriander, allspice, whatever you like. And full of nuts as well. Hazelnuts and almonds. Mm. Infinite of the fillings, marzipans, whatever you like. Depending on your city and your traditions. Okay. Uh, and even more important, the flavours, the elaborate shapes. You get stars, you get wedding carriages, you get saints and nobility. And abstract designs or wooden moulds based on biblical scenes, if you go back far enough. Historically, very intricate ones. But now you see more and more, you know, big shaped tarts or big stars and less uh, elaborate um, presentations of Jesus at the temple on when he was eight days old uh, with, with the whole cast of characters, you know. Mm. Um, times change. Uh, and they were only used sparingly for medicinal uses when spices were really expensive. Of so course. Become yeah, a, yeah. You know, you get a box of them now. <laughs> for like five euro or something, but yeah, they would have been, they would have been a delicacy back then. And you yeah. grate off a little bit into your tea if you're feeling sick. <laughs> uh, so Nuremberg makes a strong claim on a particularly famous form of Leibkuchen called the Eliezen uh, Leibkuchen, named after presumably someone called Eliza, uh, but nobody knows who she was. Um, that's made without wheat flour, so loads and loads of nuts in it, and it was shaped like Emperor Friedrich III, who's the first Habsburg okay. Emperor. And he presented... Uh, them to each of the city's 4,000 children in 1487 like a normal person. Uh, well, unless Friedrich III was sphere-shaped, then uh, the ones I had were not uh, <laughs> were not the same shape as him. Okay. Uh, well, they can only be produced within the walls of Nuremberg. They're, they have a designation protection in EU okay. law. And th- that goes back to the Middle Ages where like, they were very insistent that only members of the Baker's Guild of Nuremberg can make this design. 
Okay. According to the Oxford Companion to Sugar and Sweets, which I, I will be ordering a copy of, they contain such costly ingredients and had such extravagant designs that it was sometimes used as payment for city taxes. Oh. Which is a, is a kind of cake I can get behind. Yeah. Um, and one other city that had a competing claim is Turin, now in Poland. So gingerbread is also an important part of uh, Polish cuisine. Um, and it seems like this was brought by Teutonic Knights, who founded the city of Turin. Back, if you listen to our Königsberg episode, you'll hear all about their adventures in Prussia, uh, which included the northern parts of what's now Poland. Um, so in their crusades against the Lithuanians, who were pagan at the time, they would have brought gingerbread as like their rations. Okay, like, you know, something that's going to last for your entire exactly. crusade. and has medicinal healing properties, maybe even magical properties. Yeah. There does seem to be some antiseptic f- uh, features to the to the honey and stuff so it's not completely made up okay and these are called pierniki and again it was near spice roots coming up from lviv um from india ultimately and there was lots of prussian honey so they nuremberg and turin actually had a kind of rivalry about their secret recipes but eventually in the 15 1556 they signed uh, one of my favorite treaties which uh, basically allowed them to each make the other's special gingerbread provided they didn't tell anyone else how to do it so trade secrets okay. <laughs> shared with a rival McDonald's and Burger King teaming up. Uh, Great a super team yeah. for gingerbread. Excellent. Uh, okay. So there you go. So it's, you know, it's an important part of the Polish national cuisine in case any Poles are listening and are worried that we've given credit to the Germans exclusively. Um, that there's your, uh, your, your... You're here as well. Your, your all as well. And there's even been... Mm. Um, you know, every king of Poland, they think, has had a gingerbread made of them in Turin. And Pope John Paul II, of course bringing us back okay. to, uh, to uh, a Christian uh, figure in more Perfect. recent times. Okay. Yeah, well, I just to finish this off, I, I, I looked up a few odd uh, Christmas markets. So there's one in France, Evian Le Bon, I think is uh, how you pronounce the name of the town. I wonder, is that where Evian Water comes from? Uh, yeah, I think so. It's a, it's a spa town, mm. and apparently they, they, they uh, put together their Christmas market from pieces of driftwood. Oh, so there's there's pretty cool pictures online uh, of Santas and reindeers and things that are constructed from pieces of driftwood. They're apparently known as flottins, uh, okay. these kind of constructions. And yeah, they look very cool. There's a, apparently 700 plus of these uh, sculptures. And it, yeah, it looks kind of Tim Burton-esque. Okay. So yeah. So that's sort of uh, in the Alps somewhere, is it? It's on the shores of Lake Geneva. Okay. So it's, it sounds it sounds very... Uh, yeah. Very picturesque indeed. Yeah, I, so. I can imagine it. Mm. Moving kind of a little bit further north, uh, there's a weird market happens in Bern just before the Christmas market that I thought it would be nice to mention, which okay. is the weirdest day off, like public holiday I ever encountered, called the Zibli Merit, the, the onion market. Okay. And as best I understood it, the onion farmers of Freiburg, the next canton over, brought all of their onions to burn that morning. So in the, the people of Bern take the morning as a public holiday to buy like 10 meter strings of onion braids, onion soup, little ladybird sculptures made of onions, every kind of sculpture you can imagine made of onions. There's about 40 or 50 stores that all sell the same onion-based handmade trinkets. Everyone wow. gets very drunk and puts confetti everywhere. 
And then I think maybe they go to work in the afternoon. It was a very strange, <laughs> kind of starts at 6am. And everybody smells terrible. It, it's it's not like, if I have to choose between a day of onions and a day of gingerbread. Yeah. I'm, I know which side I'm coming down on. Yeah, and that's kind of the end of November. And it's basically, that's the line before which there can't be a Christmas market. And once all the onions have been cleared off the streets... Um, okay. Uh, definitely worth reading about. It is unusual and specific, but not very okay. Christmassy. As so you're really waiting no. for the 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 mulled wine and the glue vine to kind of um, spring into action after that. Well, the last one I have is uh, Valkenburg in the Netherlands, mm-hmm. where uh, seemingly the the you know this is quite a big Christmas market there. It was I think it was voted like uh, one of the best Christmas markets last year um, by like Lonely Planet or one of those um, travel publications. Okay. But um, yeah, seemingly the kind of unique part about the, the Valkenburg Christmas market is that they have a lot of caves. Oh, cool! And the Christmas markets basically spread into the caves, uh, oh, over, nice. you know, over over the Christmas period. So again, definitely worth looking up. We'll put a few uh, links to images and stuff in our in our show notes. Well, um, that, that, that yeah. feels quite Christmassy, you know, the kind of the the stable grotto kind of imagery. Yeah. There's a a velvet cave Christmas market which is situated under the ruins of. The Valkenberg Castle, Ooh. which sounds extre- kind of spooky and also very uh, en- enchanting. Yeah, I guess if you so, if you put the right kind of lantern up, it becomes uh, festive and romantic rather than terrifying. Yeah. no, it it looks really <laughs> really charming. It looks great. So um, yeah, would recommend checking that one out. Lovely. Put that in the diary for next Christmas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. All right, I think we're going to wrap it up there. Sorry, we didn't have Mark. Uh, but uh, we're 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 wishing everybody a Merry Christmas, and uh, yeah, we will see you for a continuation of season six in 2024. Uh, but uh, yeah, in the meantime, you can get in touch with us uh, on all the social medias, uh, and you can email us 80dayspodcast at gmail.com if you want to get in touch and say Merry Christmas. Thanks for sticking with us, and we'll see you in the new year. Frohe Weihnachten. Mm-hmm.